bodies to relax. We allow the sounds in the room to simply draw us deeper, deeper into that heart space, into that space of beingness where we cultivate our awareness of the divine power and presence that has its perfect being in all of us. The reason we're here, the thing that we express, that beautiful essence of spirit that is the life of the I am. We gently shift our awareness away from anything the ego would have us focus on, any stress, any worry. And just for a moment, we set those cares aside and allow ourselves to be present here in this present time. gently say to ourselves, here I am, here I am, here is the divine presence that is within me. And we breathe into that and we feel ourselves anchor into it, no longer pulled by distractions. We recognize this as the truth of our being. It fills us and it moves us. And we use this energy, we use this movement of self to recognize and remember the I am presence in us as we sing, but also to bless the entire world. Recognizing that the entire world is the miracle of creation, which is the miracle of God, which is the miracle of love. Let us sing together and remember. And in this exquisite stillness, we recognize and we rest and we remember that we always carry this sense of stillness with us. So let us bring this into our open-eyed state as we breathe in deeply and then exhale, opening our eyes, rejoicing in what is, as it is, and so it is. It's like the air around me It's like the sunlight on my face I feel the love of God surround me I am touched by amazing grace And all I ever wanted 
And all I ever needed Was already there Closer than the sunlight Nearer than the air I breathe you And I am filled with the Spirit It is health to my body it is peace to my mind it is joy joy to my soul it is nearer than Like the air around me It's like the sunlight on my face I feel the love of God surround me I am touched by amazing grace And all I ever wanted And all I ever needed Was already there Closer than the sunlight Nearer than time Kusala comes to visit us, I make this intention for myself that I'm going to read, <clears throat> read his bio and really get a handle on who he is so that I can share a very elaborate introduction with all of you. And every time I forget to do that. So I shared that with Kusala back in my office and he said, why don't you just say he's here? So he's here. Let's give him some love. And I'm happy to be here. I'm going to talk about something today that, that uh, may be challenging to some. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, where compassion comes from, uh, according to Buddhism. And, and the reason uh, this became interesting to me was because for the last 20 years I've been doing community service. And I didn't necessarily want to do community service because it, it takes a lot of time. Uh, and it's never finished. There's always somebody else or something else to do. Um, but I continue to do it. When I first started to meditate, I wanted to be happy and peaceful and tranquil. So I did something called samatha meditation. 
40 different kinds of samatha meditation you can do, but it gives you a certain bliss during the day. It makes you feel comfortable with what's going on, the chaos of life. And, and what I came to understand were three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that connect directly to the human experience. The first aspect of Buddhist wisdom that I became aware of was impermanence. This is called anicca in Pali. And impermanence is everywhere. Hard to see sometimes. When you look at the trees and mountains, they don't seem to change very quickly. But really easy to see when you're looking at happiness. That changes very quickly. <laughs> and so I started to apply this wisdom insight to the world around me. And I became less and less surprised about how bad life could be or how good life could be. Now, one of the aspects in my own life that I find interesting is next month, April, I get my Medicare. <laughs> now, who would have thought? You know, when I was uh, 16, thinking about Medicare, it made no sense at all to me. But now, as I approach 65 and get numerous emails and letters saying, hey, you're 65, join us. Uh, I said, wow, I made it. 65 years on Earth, you know? And I have most of my faculties, and I'm able to get around pretty well. And I'm going, okay, I could do another 10 or 15 years, you know? But this impermanence is represented in body and mind. Uh, a couple months ago, I went to the doctor because I had a little mole on my nose, and it turned out to be basal cell carcinoma. So the doctor said, well, we can just cut it off. And I'm going, man, it's my body you're talking about, and just going to cut it off? <laughs> and, and so I'm looking at this guy, and I went to read his bio online, and, and he went to Harvard to learn how to cut off part of my nose. <laughs> and I, I said to myself, that's the guy that I want. <laughs> now, I'm giving a talk at a place called Against the Stream, which is on Melrose in downtown Los Angeles. And after my talk, this guy comes up to me. And I had mentioned something about the nose and the piece of nose being cut off. And he says, did you ever read the Wizard of Oz. And I said, no, I, I never did. I saw the movie a lot, but I never read the book. He says, well, in the book, the Tin Man, the Tin Man was a lumberjack, and he wasn't a very good lumberjack, and he kept cutting off pieces of his body, and they kept replacing it with tin. And that's why they called him the Tin Man. But when he went to Oz to get his heart, Oz said, your heart was never cut out. You've always had a heart. And I thought, what a wonderful story to tell me. Even if part of my nose is no longer there, I still have a heart. <laughs> and I can feel and be sensitive. And it just, for me, put things into perspective about impermanence that this body that I drag around with me is now going downhill. And hopefully slowly. But it is, and there's no reason to reject that idea. I just have more boundaries every day, that's all. And, and I just do things perhaps a little slower, and young people are more courteous to me. 
you know? And so it's not all bad. But impermanence is always there. It's always around us. And I came to understand that it is the reason for life. If nothing ever changed, life couldn't exist. Life is in a constant state of flux. If we could stop everything just for one moment, life would stop as well. So we need this impermanence in order to stay alive, in order to function, in order to be part of the ever-changing whole. The next aspect of Buddhist wisdom that came to me was something called dukkha, the ultimate unsatisfactoriness of life. The Buddha said life isn't always unsatisfactory, but there always comes a time when it becomes unsatisfactory. And a lot of that has to do with impermanence and change. Because we try to grasp and hold on to the things that we like, and we have aversion and try to push away the things that we don't like. And in this pushing and pulling, holding and grasping, we find this unsatisfactoriness arises, this dis-ease, this, this uncomfortable feeling that things could always be better if only we could change this or that, and we never seem to be able to do that. And, and I looked at my own life, and I thought to myself, yes, on many occasions, I looked in the mirror and wished I didn't look like I did. If only I could change that. But now, as I look in the mirror, I'm thinking, I looked pretty good back then. <laughs> Maybe I didn't need to change anything at all, except the way I perceived myself. So I, I see this unsatisfactoriness. I listen to the news, and I'm going, oh my gosh, it never, ever changes. The world is a terrible place. And now we've lost a plane. And we are spending millions of dollars to find this plane. And I'm thinking, why? Because we don't lose things anymore. We have satellites. We have GPS. How can we lose something that big filled with so many humans? We will not be defeated in not knowing. We have to know. If any of you remember a Twilight Zone episode, Flight 33, <laughs> you know the Malaysian airliner is now flying over dinosaurs and I guess having an interesting time of it. So I look at the unsatisfactoriness of life and it doesn't surprise me anymore. I'm going, yeah, that's just the way life is. It's good and it's bad. It's good and it's bad and then you die. <laughs> the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom is the most difficult one because it really means that we're not here in the way we think we are. It's called anatta, not self. That in Buddhism there was a big question that arose. Who are we really? And I heard the I am which is a really great way to define yourself. But in Buddhism, we, we don't go there. We, we sort of say, who am I not? <laughs> and ultimately, when you have defined yourself as not being this, not being that, 
when you can't think of anything else, that's who you are. <laughs> but never spoken, never even conceived, because it's transcendent. Each one of us is transcendent in our own unique way. That's why I really enjoy the concept unity rather than oneness. Oneness always meant to me that I had to belong. I had to be part of it. And I was somewhat of a rebel when I was younger, like all the other nonconformists. And, and I didn't want to belong. I wanted to make my own path. I wanted to do it my way. And, and through life, it has manifested pretty much that way. That I have made some interesting choices and have done things most people wouldn't want to do, like celibacy. <laughs> and yet, somehow, it's worked out for me. So, in this idea of not being who you think you are, Maybe it's just simply what you do. Maybe you are defined by your actions and your speech on this earth, and thinking is the impetus behind that. So we've come to these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. But it still didn't lead me to the answer of where compassion comes from and why do I do what I do? And then I'm reading the Heart Sutra. Now, I like the Heart Sutra because for the first two years in reading the Heart Sutra, it made no sense at all. And it was a challenge. Can I ever understand this? And I recited it day in and day out. I would meditate. I would reflect on it. I'm going to read you just two paragraphs of the Heart Sutra to give you an idea of what I faced when I read the Heart Sutra and why it took me so long to make sense out of it. The Heart Sutra goes like this. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. Therefore, within emptiness there is no form, no sensation, perception, volition or consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body or mind, no form, sound, smell, taste, touch or dharmas, no realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness, no ignorance and no ending of ignorance till we come to no old age and death, and no ending of old age and death, no suffering, origination, extinction, or path, no wisdom, and no attainment, with nothing to attain. Whoa, that's just one of the paragraphs. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? <laughs> this is the most profound sutra in Mahayana Buddhism? Every Mahayana temple in the world every day repeats this sutra. They chant it in various languages. Does anybody ever know what it really means? And you start to figure it out, but not through an intellectual process. It's not through two or more. Now, I was giving a talk at a, at a yoga studio 
in Malibu, and it was a feisty bunch that day. <laughs> Didn't expect that at a yoga studio. <laughs> and this one woman just wouldn't let it go. She said, what is the ultimate reality? You've told us about the relative reality, two or more, it's intellectual, it's reading, it's math, it's understanding. But you talk about knowing and intuition and ultimate. What is the ultimate? And she just wouldn't take silence for an answer. <laughs> so I said to her in a rather firm way, the ultimate reality is one. She says, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. <laughs> But it could mean that one is the ultimate. There's one God, one nation under God. We all like one. We all want to be number one. It's a cool number. But is it really ultimate reality? I'd have to say in Buddhism, it is not ultimate reality. In Buddhism, ultimate reality is zero. And that freaks people out. <laughs> How can you even think about zero when you can't think about one? <laughs> but what does this zero mean? This zero is a symbol for emptiness, which is what this whole sutra is about. It's about emptiness. It says old age and no old age. They cancel each other out. You have zero. Time and time again, you end up with zero. Zero is the basis for all compassion according to Buddhism. And you say to yourself, zero is the reason I'm in community service? <laughs> zero? Well, that's what you make when you're in community service. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> but there's more to it than that. So I reflected. I went deep into a place where I found zero. And there was no past, and there was no future, and there was no me, and there was no not me. And I only had two words arise in this place of zero, and they were, don't know. That maybe the ultimate answer to every question is, don't know. <laughs> because at a relative level, we all know. It's called judgment and criticism. <laughs> we know what's good and bad. And we'll be happy to tell you. But then you have somebody who's come to this place of ultimate reality just for a moment, and all they know is don't know. Whoa. So how does compassion come out of don't know? How does compassion come out of zero? Well, in Buddhism, emptiness is very specific. It's not an empty glass or an empty pocket. It's 
empty of independent existence that none of us can ever live independently. Even if we want to be a nonconformist, even if we reject the world, we still need all those people in the world to help us live. We are conditional. We have a variety of conditions necessary for our existence. And we're all in this together, whether we know it or not. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, now I don't exist in the way I think I do. I don't know. Everything is zero. I am interconnected and interdependent with everyone. And when I stop and listen very carefully, I hear the cries of the world. I hear people who are hungry. I hear people who are homeless. I people, hear people who are dying, who are confused. I hear them because they have become a part of me. I can no longer not hear them. And somebody calls and says, can you help? And you go, well, I'll do the best I can. I'm not trained in this. I don't know specifically how to help anyone in any real way, but I'll show up and I'll be with the suffering and, and I'll look at them and I'll let them know they're not alone and I'll let them know it's not just them, that they're not the unlucky ones because we're all next. We're all next. If that doesn't get you off the cushion and into the world helping people, nothing will. You know, that sympathy thing is like, oh, I'm so glad it's not me. They deserved it. That's the sympathy thing. But this compassionate thing is, it's me. Whoa. So for 20 years, I've gotten off the cushion and gone out into the streets of L.A. and Orange County, and I've done what I could. And sometimes it's just being there. That's enough. I don't need to say anything. I don't need to be anything. I don't need to do anything. But sometimes it's hard to sit with suffering because you want to help. And then sometimes I do stuff. Sometimes I ride along with the police department. Sometimes I visit the prisons, juvenile halls. Sometimes I hang out with the people who are just a bit confused, a little unskillful, not quite sure what to do next. And I show up. I tell them what I think sometimes, if they ask. But what I think really doesn't matter, does it? My opinion really doesn't matter. But sometimes hearing another perspective gives them a choice that they didn't have before. That's why volunteers are so important in at Juvenile Hall, especially because these are young people who may not have seen all the options of life yet. And you have lawyers and doctors and ministers and all sorts of people who are educated and more educated and career-oriented, and they're going there and they're saying, hey, depends on the choices you make as to what's going to happen to you. Nothing's predetermined in this life, that's for sure. Every day you make a choice, tomorrow changes. It's up to you. So I came to understand in a very real way any compassion that drives me 
back into the world to be of service simply comes out of emptiness. The emptiness of being independent. The emptiness of not having affect me. That that's an illusion I lived with for many years. So I'm really busy and I'm really tired. And the older I get, I'll have more excuses to take those naps in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. But until then, until I have the really good excuse of not having to go out anymore, I'm out there. And people say, why? And I say, don't know. So I brought my harmonica today. I knew we had to have a little fun, too. So this is my little harmonica. Because there's something about a little harmonica that just makes you smile. Thank you so much, Kusla. That's great. It's wonderful. So now's the time when we turn within and we just anchor in those beautiful words. I invite you to close your eyes and just, oh, just let the the spirit of that great music and those great words and this beautiful fellowship that we learned is all zero. How wonderful is that? That it's all, that it's all just something that we can't really wrap our human brains around, but that it is all just isness. And so I rest and resonate in that which my words cannot describe. And I breathe in and I breathe out and I just allow myself to be as I rest, as I abide, as I reside, as I fall into something that is so much greater so much greater, so much emptier, so much more generous, so much more compassionate, so wonderful, so beautiful, so terrible, so everything. I allow myself to be here as I trust and I know that there truly is only one presence, one life, one love, and that life we call God, we call it love, we call it whatever we call it, but it is something, something that gave birth to this entire existence. 
And here in this existence, I allow myself to show up as that which I was intended to be, Spirit's highest will for my life, whether it be service, whether it be radical compassion, whether it be ridiculous kindness, all of the things that we speak about in this beautiful center, just moving into that place of not knowing, that beautiful place of unknowing, and allowing that which forms us, that which informs us, to move through us in ever-expanding, ever more wonderful, ever more beautiful and connected and unified ways. I'm so grateful, so grateful for that which is beyond words, but that which taps at our heart and pulls at us as we allow ourselves to let go of earthly concerns and move into that state of heaven on earth. I'm so grateful for this spiritual teaching, so grateful for the demonstrations of goodness that I know come forth through our beautiful spiritual work here this morning. I'm grateful for the ones that I recognize and for the ones that I don't recognize, but I just trust that there is something higher, something that is love, something more powerful than me that is at work here in this beautiful community that we have formed this morning. I'm grateful for this teaching, grateful for this spiritual center, grateful for all paths to God, and I bless them all, churches, temples, mosques, ashrams. I bless non-believers as well. And with a heart that is so filled with beauty and so filled with love and so filled with emptiness, how's that for a paradox? Filled with emptiness. I love this life and I take these words and release them into the mystical power of that which is. And together we say, and so it is. It's great to see you here this morning. I love all of you. Let's do our affirmations and then we'll sing together. Please repeat after me. I am held in spirit's holiness, divinely guided by wisdom, courage, and love. I am always connected. I see God in everything. I create joy on earth as I share my blessings. Thank you for my life. And so it is.